In October, the regulators finally made a move to put a dampener on the raging property market. Is it likely to work? What else could they do if it doesn't work and why did they act? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au When the market booms, we often hear frustrated buyers saying, surely this can't go on, surely this has to stop soon. And they're right, property booms don't go on forever and neither do most busts for that matter. Whether it's the underlying drivers that eventually rebalance naturally or which is seemingly more often the case, macro forces come into play, there's a peak to come in every cycle. Now, APRA has effectively put us on notice that they see the need to cool down the property market. And today, Chris and I are going to discuss how that's likely to play out. But before we get started, Chris, it's probably a good idea for us to firstly explain what is actually meant by the term macro prudential measures. I mean, to put it simply, it's basically the regulators coming in and making some change to the way the system works. And in particular, how the lending system works um, at the bank level. You know, what they're trying to say is, well, the system's unsustainable. We've got to protect all the bank's um, profits and the whole stability of the whole system um, and consumers and make sure they're not borrowing too much. Um, And so what we need to do is sort of tweak the way that they're basically borrowing money. And they did that uh, in the previous boom in 2012 to 2017. They did that. uh, And they've sort of come in here again to sort of make a change to, to slow down credit growth. It's just off the charts how much people are borrowing at the moment. Investors are coming back. Um, and they know that this is causing massive price rises. And, you know, the only other thing they could really do is, uh, besides changing how much people can borrow, and um, is changing the rate at how much people can borrow at. And um, unfortunately, it's really hard to increase interest rates in the current environment for lots of different reasons. And so what they're trying to do is slow down the demand for credit, um, which is really tough to do because this is an owner-occupier boom not driven by investors in the past, which is who they targeted in the last one. Yeah, so this time around, what APRA have increased the serviceability um, measure, correct? So do you, let's step through what that means. Yeah, so I mean, in my view, the horse has already bolted, right? And what the change they, uh, they were talking about um, doing two different changes. One, increasing the buffer in terms of the current interest rate how protected is the borrower if interest rates rise? And at the moment, it's a 2.5% um, on top of whatever their current interest rate. But they said, look, you know, you know, if, if you're getting borrowing at, say, 2.5%, plus 2.5% is 5%, we need to make sure that the borrower can afford 5% interest rates if they're going to borrow this money today. So you're protecting the borrower. But what APRA said is, well, why don't we um, you know, increase that to a 3% buffer. So, you know, instead of it being a 5% interest rate, they need to, you know, make sure they can afford it at 5.5%. Now, that's a really, really small tweak. It's a potentially, you know, for the borrowers who are stretching right to their maximum, 
um, for some borrowers, it's potentially up to a 5% decrease in how much they can borrow. So, you know, let's say they could have borrowed a million dollars, maybe they can borrow 950, but it's not like they can only borrow 800 now and they go, well, I don't even want to borrow because I can't buy something. It's a very minor tweak and not every borrower was stretching to their limit. So if, for example, they could have borrowed a million uh, or 1.1, but they're only borrowing a million because they only need to borrow a million. And so it doesn't affect them. And Mm. so every borrower is not going to be affected by this because not every borrower was stretching to the limit, only a portion worse. So um, it was a very, very minor change. And I actually think that um, if you're going to do it, you might as well go a lot harder. You know, I don't think this is going to really dampen demand at all. Um, And it's just really, I think, trying to scare the market into say, hey, hang on. Don't go crazy because we're going to step in and try to, um, you know, slow the market down. But everyone's a bit confused. Everyone thought that what caused the 15%, you know, 20% falls in the 2018-2019 time um, was because of APA regulation. They really forget it was a lot of, um, you know, fear around uh, the Royal Commission and banks were worried that they were going to get sued basically by borrowers because they were lending out, you know, for many years without looking at living expenses and that got sort of brought to light and the banks were fearful and they said, look, until we know um, if we can get sued, we're going to cut back lending. Um, and they, that that's what really caused the downturn. Plus you had, um, you know, much higher serviceability rates um, in terms of how much you could borrow that were left over from the last boom. Um, and plus you had all the, you know, the fear around the changes with the government potentially with labour. And so the, the biggest thing that credit crunch was because of the Royal Commission. That's not what's happening now. It's just really a, a tightening of how much people can borrow. It is a real difference, isn't it? And and I remember when I was a sales agent back in the sort of towards the end of the peak of the, the boom back in 2003, you know, yeah. <laughs> way back in my day. And so there was a lot of talk that interest rates were a fair bit higher then than they are now too, right? We we're all used to higher interest rates. But there was a fair amount of talk around back then about interest rates rising and that was sort of freaking people out. And you'd have this sort of polarised views around it. You'd have this idea that, oh, I better get in now and lock in my rates while they're still low or the market's going to fall off a cliff, I'm going to wait and prices will fall. And ultimately, the end, yeah, 2003, September is the peak of that market. Prices did fall for a period and then they started going up again as they tend to do. And I'm talking about Sydney here. And I'd heard the term for the first time, jawboning. And I was like, this is interesting. So I started looking into that. And and back then it was it was – Sort of put put around that the RBA used did they jawboned so they basically talked about raising interest rates way ahead of actually raising interest rates in an effort to actually impact confidence and you know and I see and I suspect maybe because like you say this this measure from APRA is is a fairly minor one the whole scheme of things and we'll talk about specifically who it is likely to impact in a minute. But I suspect that maybe it's fitting in the same category as a little bit of jawboning. You know, we the the economy is you know interest rates are the implications of, of increasing interest rates is more than just the housing market. You know, there you've got so many other um, uh, economic uh, factors that are relying on low interest rates or higher interest rates or whatever. And so, yeah. therefore, they don't have that as a as a um, as a tool to be able to use. And so, they're going to try and talk about the idea of bringing in measures to slow things down to try to take the heat out of the market. Would you say that that might be relevant? 
I do think you're right. I think there's something called forward guidance. So, you know, once you can't cut rates any further, for example, on interest rates, um, they've got to basically say, well, rates aren't going to rise because they can't cut them further and that's trying to create demand. It's the same sort of thing here. You know, they're sort of saying, look, um, we're going to start to come on in and reduce how much people can borrow. But I just think that the amount that they've sort of, the change they made was so, so minor that it's not going to scare the market. It's not going to say, you know, because people are going to say, well, what's the difference to me? We've got so many questions in the last two weeks from clients. And it's interesting Mm. because we don't actually know the impact yet, which I'll, I'll explain as well. But, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't think, and we say, well, look, it's no change to you. You know, your budget is this. This is even if after November, this is what your budget's going to be. You're still borrowing well within your limits. There's zero change. And for some clients, there's potential um, change there. So a really interesting point at the moment is um, we don't know whether it's going to affect current pre-approvals. And we don't know if it's going to affect pre-approvals from a certain date. Because, it, you know, it sounds like this is going to come in at the end of October. So if you get pre-approved on the 31st of October and mm. you've got a three-month pre-approval, um, that takes you, what's that up to? You know, end of January, right? And so basically you could buy in November and December under the old rules. Um, we just don't know. And, you know, Macquarie have sort of said at the moment that maybe after November 1, they'll have to redo pre-approvals. That's the only banks that sort of said that. So, But it's a lot of work for the banks to redo all these yeah. uh, pre-approvals. So it's a really unknown at the moment. There's some really interesting sort of flaws as well. Like back in the 2012 to 2015 period, bank servicing calculators were all over the place. There was massive gaps if you went to one bank to another bank. Um, and this is one of the f- first things that APRA sort of came in and noticed. They said, hang on a sec, why can that customer walk into NAB and borrow X when they can go to AMP or ING and only borrow Y? And there's a massive differences. And they looked at how the banks were doing servicing calculators and they said, right, well, that's not fair. That's a flaw. Or you can play around with that and you can trick the system there. Um, and, you know, as brokers, we knew all these things. We knew if there was, if you did the calculator this way, then this would potentially get a better result. And there's still flaws in calculators. We find them all the time. We even found one, uh, you know, last week with a big bank, you know, where this assessment change, um, this bank does it on your fixed rates, um, not your variable rate. And so if you fix all your mm. loan uh, plus the buffer, because fixed rates are under 2%, this has zero change on borrowing capacity. Uh, and so, um, you know, we find these things in things. So I think with the problem with this APRA change, it's just so minor. They were talking about doing something called a DTI limit. So basically the amount of money you could borrow based on your income would cap out at six times your income. So if you're on 300 grand a year as a couple, you know, you can borrow 1.8 million or, you know, we can go through all the different incomes. I'm sure everyone can times the number by six. But um, if they did that, it was really hard to implement because what the banks would have to do is override all their calculators and, and change the way that the limit kicks in and not the assessment rate. And banks, uh, you know, to do that change, it's really difficult for them. And so the APRA said, well, let's just come in right now and do the assessment rate. Now, we don't know. APRA could be saying behind the scenes that we are going to implement a DTI limit, which I think is going to have a much bigger impact. You could see a 10, maybe a 15% reduction in borrowing capacity, including maybe the 5% that's already happened. So I think that would have been a bigger impact, but that's not what they did. They just increased the assessment rate by, you know, half a percent, which is so, so minor. Because that's what Frydenberg was saying couple of weeks back right he was threatening about that multiple of income put that limit in place so so you're saying that that in real terms and once again that could be jawboning that could just be just threatening you know putting everyone on notice um 
be careful. And, you know, people react different ways, of course, but there's groups of people reacting in the same way, which is obviously what they're <laughs> what they're hoping for. Um, so there are a lot of extra tools, you know, in the toolkit, right? And if this doesn't have the impact, so they've, they've put everyone on notice, they're hoping that, you know, look, okay, be good, behave yourself, boys and girls, you know, we don't want this property market getting out of hand. However, FOMO is absolutely rife and I don't think that's going to really stop too many people. So so assuming it doesn't have the desired impact, um, what else could they do? Well, I mean, it's not very favourable to start targeting first-home buyers and this is one of the things that mm. they're going to really struggle with, you know. It's, it's hard to say, hang on a sec, we've all had a party for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years uh, and now that you've, you know, got your job and you've worked hard and you're saved, you can't enter the housing market because you need a 20% deposit now or you need to only borrow five times income. And, you know, it's just not fair to say that, you know, the change the rules or change the rules of the game and affect first-home buyers. And that's the problem here is that, you know, there's only limits they can do before they really start to hurt first-home buyers. Um, and that's just, you know, it's, it's a bit sort of rich when, you know, other people have benefited from the system and then you're saying that, that you can't. Um, the thing they're going to want to target is investors. Now, investors, because there's so much owner-occupier-led demand, first-home buyers upgraders, um, people renovating, you know, these are all taking on debt and increasing homes values. Um, They're going to invest a percentage is still well down. But the interesting thing is the amount of money investors are borrowing is similar to the last boom in terms of a dollar value. Um, yes, prices have gone up, but the amount they're borrowing is 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 a lot. And so I do think that if we do see... H- the- hang on. So when you say the dollar value, so as a proportion... Um, it, like if the dollar value is the same, they're actually proportionately b- borrowing less. Uh, it's about similar. So they're borrowing much less as a proportion. Yeah, I mean investors are borrowing around thirty percent of the debt at the moment, mm. right? In, owner occupiers are borrowing seventy. In the last boom, it was around 50, up to fifty percent mm, for investors. 55. So it was huge, right? And so it was a real. And they had to slow that down because investors are really, um, you know, they're not going to win as many votes as first home buyers, right? And so <laughs> what they were saying is right. A way that we can, you know, uh, w- put more a bit power into first home buyers is slow the investor market down. But that's not what's happening right now. And so if we see investors really continue to enter the market, um, absolutely they'll do things like they did last time. But at the moment, it's really hard to, to, to really slow things down because without impacting first-home buyers um, because first-home buyers are usually the ones who are borrowing more than 80% and they're usually the ones who are borrowing, you know, five, six times their income. To their max. That's, that's what they need to do. And also they've got mm. the trajectory of income. Like most people say, oh, you're borrowing a lot of money based on your income. Well, if you're 28, you've studied, you've worked hard on your career, you know, you'd like to think that there's wage growth. You, you're pu- pushing for a promotion in a couple of years' time. Um, and, you know, uh, so they are better to be stretching at that time of their age. And so you can't say that you can't stretch um, because um, we really want to slow the property market down. So it's a really tough tough one for them. Could you argue, though, that potentially this is like, a, you know, a, what is it, a, a firing across the bow to stop investors taking up a greater share of the market. Do you think maybe this is a preemptive move on that? Um, I think so. I think they, they, they are a bit scared that if investors um, – investors haven't been in a big part of the market, mm. you know. Investors always come late. Like we've got this recency bias, which was talked about lots on this podcast, like, you know, in stock market booms, investors and gearing and 
come in uh, when the market's the hottest it is. You know, people go and <laughs> leverage their money at the worst time when valuations are the most stretched because they feel like they're missing out on the party, right? And it's just um, human nature. And so I definitely think they're a bit worried about the investor growth. I think that, um, you know, we're seeing a massive change. Uh, investors are... Uh, are looking at the regional hubs, you know, they're going, well, I believe in, the, I can't afford to buy an investment property in the capital city um, because of the price. And I didn't really want to buy investment properties in the regions before because I didn't believe in the story. But now they're like, I believe in the region's story and I can buy a good investment property. And so I do think they're worried that um, the investor market's going to really sort of take off. And so you're right, you may, maybe they're trying to say, but you know, a lot of investors, um, you know, people, first-time investors, you know, they haven't got the six prop property portfolios. They've just got a house they're happy in. They've got more growth now because prices have run up dramatically. And so now that equity plus their incomes and they're paid down their mortgage because rates are low, they look at their balance sheet and they go, well, hang on a sec, we could afford to buy an investment property right now and it's our first one. And so that's what I think is happening is a lot of first-time investors are, are going to come into the market and um, it's really hard to slow them down because they've got low debt, they've got equity and they can borrow a fair whack of money. And that sort of feeds into that bigger um, affordability issue, doesn't it? Because we, we have had a couple of uh, interviews recently on this and I find it quite fascinating because you know the conversation uh, particularly when we interviewed Michelle Adair from the, the Illawarra Housing Trust you know and what she says is that the conversation around housing affordability in this country is usually around first home buyers getting into the property market it's not it's not a bigger conversation around house as shelter and the rental market and and assisted um, you know subsidized living and all the rest of it and so, of course, if you discourage investors from entering the market, investors play an important part, you know, of providing housing for people who can't afford to buy a property or who potentially are living in an area that they don't want to buy in. And, you know, and, and it's an important, very important part of the, the – and we've in, yeah, interviewed uh, Ben Kingsley for PICA, the Property Investors – PICA, what does it stand for again? <laughs> Council Australia maybe? I'll go with that one. Thank you, bro. <laughs> Property Investors Council of Australia, boy, oh boy, um, you know, around this, this, it's sticky. It's, it's not an easy conversation because, of course, um, yes, it's all fine. You want to, you don't want to deter first home buyers getting into the market in favour of helping investors. You know, you don't, you don't want to also dis detract from the importance of investors in the market because then, of course, rents start going up because there's less investment properties around. You know, it's a very difficult, tricky balance to get this all right um so and there's so many vested interests as well and so many very powerful lobby groups and all the rest of it it's 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 a really interesting thing so so the whole reaction you know from the buying public or the non-buying public even to any measures that are taken i guess that knock-on effect is very hard i guess for governments or regulators to anticipate isn't it you know and how do they control it so at the end of two, well middle of 2017 the last boom ended and then no one seemed to be able to control <laughs> the downward trajectory for a period of time until things actually i think that they started turning up of their own volition at the very end of 2018, even before the election. We've got evidence of that now, that that's actually what happened. And yet it was attributed to the election that the actual, the property market turned, you know. So there's all these, there's stuff happening that I think is the, just the inertia of a market. And then there's also these other big 
factors that come into play that do have an impact. So it's quite a fascinating, I, you know, from the behavioural point of view but also mm. from the interventionist point of view, it's quite fascinating to see how these things can play out. Yeah, it's a really um, tough one because investors are a bit savvier, I find, today than they were. I think a lot of investors have gone and been burnt on the off-the-plant space. They've gone and bought, um, you know, the affordability part of the market and they've seen that, you know, that if they did buy something in a, you know, more of a quality asset, that's run a lot. Um you know, we've also, even just yesterday, we had a client who said, oh, you know, if I did buy that as an investor property, I could have done this. And I said, well, what happens if you, you know, as a house, you know, in the inner west, for example, is a, a really small block. And, you know, he's looking at the growth and saying, oh, that would have been a great investment. I said, well, did you actually just look at what the three and the four bed houses did, you know? And you would have seen the growth on those. And he's like, actually, you're mm. right, you know, like, and that's just within a, a good housing market and a group. I think so a lot of investors are sort of being burnt. They understand all the building issues. And what they really want is investors to buy apartments, you know, create housing stock um, for renters um, across the whole country. And I think a lot of investors are saying, hang on, say, I don't want to go near those. Um, I don't, I'm not going to fall for the, you know, the incentives. I'm not going to just fall for the depreciation. Um, I know there's building issues and I want to buy a house. Um, and all the stats are, are supporting that type of investment thesis. So, um, yeah, it's a really tough one. You, you've got investors going to markets where first home buyers are also playing. So the housing markets of regions, um, they're pushing out, uh, you know, other first home buyers in that, you know, for example, it might be Hobart or Cent uh, Central Coast or Wollongong. So the investors, you know, beating the first home buyer, uh, it's creating rental stock for the market, which is great. But then other um, home buyers are buying other investment properties. So that's probably eating up away a lot of the rental properties as well because investors are getting out as well. So it's, it's a really tough one for them to try to manage and slow things down. Naturally, affordability will, but the thing that, will happen affordability can get stretched a lot further than you know where things are at now if rates stay low and the thing they really need to do is increase interest rates that undoubtedly <laughs> would scare the market you know I, I even think if fixed rates jumped dramatically um and so if they you know got rid of all these fixed rates sub two percent and all the fixed rates were you know around three percent I think that would be enough to scare the market. But unfortunately, what we're seeing, we're actually seeing variable rates continue to fall. Um, you know, we've got, for example, Macquarie will do 2.14% on a variable rate, which is unbelievable. You know, it's, it's crazy. So variable rates are still falling and fixed rates are still under 2%, you know, for, under, for three years. So um, unless they really jump, people will continue to take on money because they're not betting on, on rates rising. So what's leading variable rates to fall? I mean, is it actually market competition that banks want greater market share? Yeah, pretty much. That's always what it is. It's basically mm. um, I want to get more exposure. So Macquarie will do that rate on low LVRs, like under 60%, right? Um, and so what uh, a lot of the other banks are around 2.3, you know, 2.4. Um, but it was interesting. The last couple of years, they, the variable rate didn't drop that much, um, but the, all the fixed rates dropped last year. And I, I do think it was a bit of a banking cartel um, decision. They all said, look, let's just keep our variable rates really high. We're not sure. We don't want to eat into our future margins, so let's not all compete with each other. Let's all just offer very similar fixed rates um, and protect <laughs> our books. And that's pretty much what they all did. They all offered exactly the same rates. No one dropped their variable rate. Um, but that's really changed this year. Every, all the banks are backfighting against one another um, and sort of undercutting each other, forcing the variable rate down. But with the, that's interesting from the um, – you're a broker, obviously, over 60% of Australians are using brokers now. And so brokers – and I'm and I, on the mailing list for the was it mortgage broker 
magazine or whatever it is that yeah. you know. And I, and I I see the sort of the headlines that come through on on those uh, those uh, emails, right? Yeah. And a big part of it is turnarounds. You know, I see that that the time it takes to turn around an application seems to be a really big thing in the broking space, and so whilst the banks are sort of competing on the the variable rates and their fixed rates and whatever, is that sort of aimed at consumers? But really what the big point of difference or the unique selling proposition that that one bank might offer over another in a broker space is the rapidity or the the speed with which they can turn around an application? Oh, absolutely. As part of the assessment on who you're going to recommend for a pre-approval or who you're going to recommend if they've just purchased something, turnaround times play a big part because, um, you know, if a bank's got issues with their credit assessment team because they've just got an understaffing problems, which has been massive across um, a lot of the banks over the last couple of years, you know, a lot of them have uh, offshoring teams and, Mm. um, you know, massive inflow. We're we're talking like 250 um, billion um, uh, a year of credit is sort of happening at the moment where usually it's around 100 to 150. So, you know, the amount of loan going through the system is almost double the amount that there usually is you know um there's more property selling which is really interesting so i think there's a lot of more property selling um on a monthly and annual basis than there usually has been so it's not like we've just got this low listings there's low sales there's actually a lot of sales happening um but there's very low listings because everything's selling really fast um and that's also creating a lot of credit (laughs) growth um Actually, slow down for a minute because that's really interesting, isn't it? That there is that perception and there is that that reality that there's less listings around. But what you're saying is a reason is actually the speed that the days on market effectively is the key metric here, not the amount of listings. Because you do look at transactions, and this is something I've argued in the past. We need to look at transactions, not listings. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For that exact reason. Yeah, and we're selling. We're selling lots. I think I was just looking at it. Mm. We're selling about 40 sort of uh, averaging 50,000 a month at the moment. Um, and usually, you know, it's it's like half of so – I've got an exact number here. Sorry, I just wrote it down prior to here. So, yeah, we're averaging around 50,000 a month of sales at the moment, which, um, you know, is around six uh, 600,000 a year, which is massive, right? Um and I think we're usually only selling about... In Australia, you mean? Yeah, across the whole of Australia. And usually around yeah. 40,000 a month. Sorry, I was looking for my notes here. So we're up about 25, you know, 30% on what we usually sell um, per month. And so and that's it over the last five years. So it's we're not, so not there's not enough um, properties transacting. There's definitely a drop in listings. There's only around 150,000 on the market Um at the moment, but usually there's 250,000. So there's either a lot of properties selling off market or everything that comes on the market is just selling within days. And we can see that because, you know, days on market's really down across the whole country, right? So um, they're coming on and they're selling. I tell you what though, these transactions are obviously um, increasing in certain areas and not uniformly because when I look at um, on a micro sort of that sort of um, granular uh, look that I do on suburb after suburb in the inner suburbs of Sydney, you know, and I've said this many times, we've seen transactions falling significantly since 2016 and they haven't recovered. And COVID or non-COVID, you know, the transactions in some suburbs are markedly smaller because of COVID, because of lockdowns and whatever. But generally speaking, they're sort of, they, they really came down off 2016, about a third on the off down from the previous year. And they're sort of sat at a, at a sort of fairly stable level ever since. So clearly 
those extra 25% of properties that are transacting aren't happening in Sydney necessarily, or certainly not in the inner 10K radius of Sydney. So they're happening somewhere. I wonder where the big increases are. Yeah, that's right. And I think when we look at these big numbers, you, you can get lost because you've got to go down to the micro story of where you're buying. You can definitely see that. Um, what I've, interesting, we've got a, uh, how do I say this? A new client at one of the big portals is very high up. Um, and uh, we were chatting, uh, you know, around the quality of the listings on the portal. Um, and they were mm. saying that, yes, they're up, but the actual quality is down. They just, as a, as a um, organization, they can see um, and the actual ones that go super hot, just a few and far between, you know. And, you mm. know, the views per listing, which is something that, um, you know, REA, for example, um, put out every month is really interesting. And, you know, in Sydney and Melbourne or, or say New South Wales and Victoria, it's around 2,000 per property at the moment. And it's usually around 1,000. And so, you know, there's lots of people looking at, at, at properties right now and that hasn't dropped off. Um, and we're seeing that on the ground as well. You know, with, uh, buyers are definitely pickier. Um you know, but I do think they're still, you know, desperate to sort of get in. They still want to buy. They haven't changed their desire to buy, even though prices have risen. Um, they're just maybe being a little bit pickier and slowing down um, their selection a little bit. Um, uh, and so they're, they're definitely dragging on pre-approvals a lot longer, which is a good thing, to be honest. We actually like clients to be picky and um, take their time. But are they taking their time because they, they can't? You know, it takes – I mean, look, I, I come across a lot of buyers who have been struggling themselves before they come to us and, and quite often there's a couple of different paths that people can go to. They get to a point where they say, all oh, right, the magic solution is a buyer's agent because they're going to give me all these off-market listings. <laughs> That's quite a natural thing. Yeah. You have to disabuse them of that notion before they become a client. Um, you know, yes, that's partly true, but that's not the actual answer to your problem. And there's, there's buyers I see that go out there and just – they miss out because they're not quick enough and then they just throw caution to the wind and they jump in boots and all yep. without energy pr diligence. They throw their entire budget at something, you know, and it's like, what the hell? Is that what decision fatigue led you to do? You know, yep. there's those sorts of examples. There's the examples of the people that, that go to ground and say, oh, that's it, this is too hard, I'm going to wait till after, you know, till prices fall and you've just got to hope that they do come down to a lower point than they are now. Um, you know, there's all these different ways of responding to this sort of market conditions. Some, you know, so I'm not certain that, I mean, we encourage our clients to be picky and it's like, you you know, keep your eye on the prize, you know, like make, stay the course, don't go compromising. Um, you've got to compromise. Obviously, everyone's got to compromise whenever you buy a property, but make sure you compromise on the right things. And if you're going to pay a premium, pay a premium for a good property, don't mm, pay a premium yeah. for junk and all those sort of things that I keep saying. One of the things that I've been really alarmed at is what buyers agents have been buying. Yeah. You know, and I'm mortified by this. I'm going to start a, a, a little series of rant videos, I think, and this is yeah. going to be one of my one of my rants. And I there's one particular buyers agent, and this is one of many, many, many examples. I, I bumped into this particular buyers agent who's been around for a long time, should know better. And I bumped into him outside uh, – a property that we'd both just had an inspection of, we were, you know, bemoaning the market, et cetera, et cetera, as you do. And he said, oh, yeah, I had a client just missed out on this property around the corner. Um, you know, it went for X dollars. It was crazy. It was ridiculous. And I went, "What? why did you have a client going for that? It was a really awful property. And he was like, oh, well, I'm really glad they didn't get it. Um, and I said, what do you mean you're glad they didn't get it? He says, well, it was terrible, you know, this and that, blah, blah, blah. But I couldn't really tell him that, could I? 
I couldn't tell him I was glad they yeah. didn't get it. I said, why couldn't yeah. you tell him that? And he said, well, because I've been helping them, you know, to buy it. And I'm like, okay. Well, that very same, I was mortified, but anyway, the very same agent, I drove up a main road on Saturday and there was uh, what looked like a big open house inspection, which is sort of, um, you know, we're not, we're recording this and lockdown hadn't ended mm. on last Saturday. Out the front, there's quite a few people all lined up ready to go in and do their one-on-one inspection. And there was this same buyer's agent lined up to have a look at this property on a main road. Mm. And I'm like, why? Why pay a buyer's agent to buy you a piece of crap yeah. that really isn't going to be that difficult to buy or buy yourself? And you probably you save yourself money probably as well. I mean, you save the fee. If they're not actually giving you advice and helping you to properly navigate this market, yeah. then they're... I know we've gone off topic here because we're talking about prudential measures, but, I mean, there's just <laughs> – this is my rant, you know. How is he adding value? Yeah, but so, this is what some people do. Yeah, I think it's really interesting at the moment because we um, we always sort of – once we've got the brief of in terms of the strategy right, in terms of talking them through, you know, what are you trying to achieve here, what are you, where are you going to buy, um, what can you afford, what are your repayments, you know, all those sort of – um, big questions we figure out. Then we sort of say, how are you going to make this happen, right? And we'll then try to refer them to the, the you know, a number of buyers agents in that pocket that they're sort of looking to work on. And we, we don't, we, uh, we un- sell the value of buyers agents. We've seen it so many times and we know that, you know, they're going to get much better results. We give them a, a referral to these buyers agents. We never get paid anything referring to any buyers agent. Um, so there's no incentive for us for them to use them. But we know they're going to get a better result. But then they go and have these conversations and for many years, a lot of them can't justify the fee, right? Because they go, well, I've got to pay that fee. It's going to come out of my budget, um, et cetera. Mm. In the last six months, it's completely flipped. People are coming to us and saying, right, we want to use a buyer's agent um, and we don't want to, you know, fight in the marketplace. Um, And they're signing up buyer's agents. They're even coming to us with buyer's agents that I've never even heard of before. Happened to us yesterday. Mm. And I looked at sort of where they're working and how long they've been a buyer's agent for. And I'm like... And they know the fee they're paying. And I'm like, it's just, for me, I don't even know how this, 12 months of experience in buyer's agency world and they're charging these huge fees and they're, how are they possibly an expert? Um, and so I'm seeing people sign up <laughs> buyer's agents. Um, and yep. <laughs> um, I'm also, um, you know, the good buyer's agents though, have got busy books. They're at full, mm. um, you know, and they can't take on new clients because they've got multiple competing briefs and those briefs are taking longer to fill because, um, they've, you know, it's a hard thing, you know, to, to find, you know, to get the deal done for those clients. And so a lot of them have got waiting lists as well. You know, I think, Veronica, you'd be must get pretty close to full, I'm sure, um, you know, in, in your business. And so um, they're, they're, because they're there's a few number of buyers agents, there's a huge increase in demand. Everyone's looking for an edge. Everyone just you know, sees the market moving and they think, well, if I pay, you know, 1% to 2% for a buyer's agent, that's better than waiting three months and paying 6% higher in a purchase price. And so it's easy mm. to justify the fee. Then they go try to find buyer's agents, they're full, you know, there's lots of new buyer's agents with one, two years experience sort of willing to sell the dream. And I actually argue some, a lot of those buyer's agents, we've even seen it, um, we feel like they hinder the transaction. I feel like they upset the agents because they come in and try to play hardball. They don't understand, you know, the agent hasn't got much trust with them because they haven't heard of them before, they've never bought from them and they just see them as a new yep. buyer's agent. And, um, and so I feel like sometimes they butcher the transaction uh, and get in the mm. way of it rather than actually help. And one way is potentially buying a poor property for them, but the other way is just, you know, stuffing up the negotiation and 
lots of other things and charging a fee for it. So, um, yeah, lots of, very, lots of danger around using buyer's agents at the moment, I feel. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. It's interesting that you say that, actually, and um, literally I'm transitioning my business away from doing a lot of the one-on-one buyer's agency work to actually partnering and identifying those buyer's agents that are actually good operators and partnering with them to actually provide a better service for clients. Because I tell you what, for individuals going out there to try to find a good buyer's agent, it's really difficult. You just highlighted some of the issues, right? And I know I'm so critical <laughs> about buyers agents. I can pinpoint a good one. <laughs> mm. And and I've realized that I can't help enough people um, the way I've been doing it. Mm. And literally we've actually just started transitioning through this to identify and partner with some really key, very competent, very experienced players and work through a, a much more structured way of actually helping people and, and very much upfront you know, getting them to understand the possibilities for their search as well so that there's yep. there's a real solid foundation to move forward here. And this uh, – and, you know, I'm sort of speaking slightly out of turn because I haven't actually properly launched or changed the website or anything, but this is the direction that I'm going into my business mm. for that exact reason, that here we are, here I am, I'm a buyer's agent. You know, I, I hosted that show, you know, for four years sort of espousing the benefits really to sort of the profile, raising the profile of using a buyer's agent and the idea of it. And then I joined Reba and I was vice president for a few years and because the idea was to raise the bar in the industry and actually make it – Easy to identify who's a good player, who's not a good player. But unfortunately, our governing bodies, um, back to regulators here, <laughs> which is the sort of topic of this this podcast, our governing body, the Office of Fair Trading, doesn't have, doesn't seem to have the will to raise the benchmark mm. to where it needs to be to yeah. actually make sure that people can rely that on the, a certain calibre of experience and, and uh, professional when they're engaging a buyer's agent. So, therefore, we've got to, in some way, there's got to be a an ability or some, some facility out there for consumers when they want to go and find a good buyer's agent to actually be able to be confident in what they're doing. Because like you say, there's a lot of false hope being peddled. It's the the USP or the unique selling proposition. Oh, you know, I get access, more access to off markets. I do this, I do that. I'm so wonderful. I've been doing this for a year and I and I think I know who you're talking about in particular. There's a very slick operation that's that's sprung up and proudly espousing the fact that these he's only had a year's experience and supposedly helped his, you know, million dollars in billings in one year. And it's like, holy mackerel. Mm. The very fact that some people are proud to have so little experience, mm. you know, is is alarming, you know, in this market. So I think for people who really want to actually find somebody who's got the right smarts to actually help them, you know, it's a really difficult ask. Yeah, and so, sometimes um, the, yeah. the challenge I think with buyers agents is the reality is you're putting a an additional pressure on your search. Um, 
where they want to get you off the books and things can get very um, mm. fidgety quite fast because your brief is, um, you know, a good brief. I mean, we're pivoting. Heart. From my, uh, yeah, heart, <laughs> that's it. And um, the buyer's agent wants to start getting you off the books. Um, you know, we, uh, for example, my sister's buying at the moment. We engaged a buyer's agent. Um, great buyer's agent, you know, lots of respect. Um, but our brief was tough, you know. What we wanted was a garden apartment in the east in a small block with good light and the budget was probably not enough, to be honest. We probably went in there a bit hopeful um, and we had to pivot because we just said, look, the quality we're going to get for this budget, even though it's a big budget on paper, um, we've decided to, to go to a different area and use a different buyer's agent. And so, but, you know, we were joking and just saying like, you know, that the issues that were happening where we wanted X and the market was delivering Y and, you know, hours were ticking over in terms of the buyer's agent's um, service and, they were searching for us and the more time they spent on us, the less time they could spend on um, um, other clients. And so it's a problem for buyers agents is once you get a good brief and a good quality property is um, they want you off the books and they'll start throwing you different things. And so I do think that's one of the challenges in the market is that, um, you know, the take up a buyers agent and there's just not enough great buyers agents um, to be fair. I think that, you know, this this whole conversation was around the, the, the changes to the you know, servicing and slowing down credit growth. What's happened to date is not going to do much. That's the reality. It's not going to slow down investors much. It's not going to slow down owner occupiers. The real question is, is do they come back and have a second bite of the cherry? And the problem is they may do that. They want to, uh, like an interest rate cut, they want to see how it works first and then come back and say, oh, um, you know, we need to make more changes. So I don't think APRA are going to come out this side of Christmas and say, hang on a sec, that hasn't worked because how do you know? And so they're going to want to come mm. out sometime next year. But from what we're seeing, um, unfortunately, that could be after prices rise another 5 or 10%, you know, that's the reality. And so, you know, the later they come in, the more correction they've got to do really um, or the bigger impact that correction will be. And so I think the problem is they went too um, little too late um, and, uh, you know, the real thing that's going to slow down the market is increasing interest rates or a dramatic lift in listings. Um, and unfortunately, people need a home to live in. And so um, you can't just list your property. So you can't just get this increase in listings um, dramatically because people, if they're selling, where are they going to live? They're going to go on and buy something. And so that if you're selling, you're buying. And so you just it's just a transaction that's sort of left to right. It's not going to increase the number of listings um, and not... Not people, no one's going to sell and just sit out of the market. That just doesn't really happen with homes. Now, we, we can talk about sort of Australia's two biggest property markets, that's Sydney and Melbourne Metro. Um, and then obviously, as we've discussed many times, this, this current positive market conditions or price growth is relatively uniform. I mean, at the, at the quantum of it is not uniform, but it is happening across the country that pretty much everywhere, everywhere is on the up, except for those areas of, you know, massive oversupplied yep. apartments, right? For obvious reasons around the, the, the COVID, the no international students and the, the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so it's sort of well publicised that those, um, those are issues. Now, we are going to be interviewing Eliza Owen very soon, and uh, we will be one of the things we'll be discussing uh, from CoreLogic. Eliza is an economist at, at CoreLogic, and one of the the issues that will be, or one of the things that we'll be discussing, is the uh, pain and gain report that she just released, and I've read through, and that's for the June quarter. So, across the country. In these record-breaking times of uh, price growth, still eight and a half percent of properties transacted at a loss 
mm. you know. Some areas still have double digits. Some still areas and some property types still over 20% of properties that are sold in that period, sold at a loss. So, you know, this rising tide lifts all ships, <laughs> bullshit. That's a perfect example to show that that's not true. So back to back to the fact that, you know, this, the powerhouses of the Australian property market being Sydney and Melbourne, of course, and every, everything rising but not really everything rising, okay, if you dig deeper, you know, we've had some months has been 3% growth in a month yep. this year. You know, that the worst month I think was 1.5%. Yeah. Even, you know, even in a year of 1.5% a month is pretty phenomenal. That's Sydney, right? Yep. Sydney houses. That is ridiculous um, growth. And so, like, I, it's sort of interesting that you talk about this particular measure that AFRA brought in place as being so minor. In the face of that, it's like, I don't know, is it, is it like yeah. trying to ride a surf ski in a tsunami? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you think that's not a bad way to think about it. I mean, if you talk about it on a monthly rate, you're talking three months of growth. So, all they're potentially done is, is reduce, um, you know, taking three months of growth out of the market. Um, you know, in terms of how much people can borrow by 5%, right? Uh, and it's only going to mm. affect, you know, a small number of, um, of borrowers out there. I think you're right. Like at the start of this year, we that March, April time, we just saw some massive prices happening, you know, well ahead yeah. of the market. Um, and some of those prices, I think, haven't been achieved again. You know, there was just some huge FOMO at the start of this year. Um, but, you know, uh, there was lots of talk, CoreLogic, you know, Tim was out there, you know, saying rate of growth slowing down, the market's really slowing down in June. Um, I was like, well, that's not what that's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing, um, you know, the number of people looking to get pre-approved, the desire for credit really slowing down. There was a little bit of a change, um, but the rate of growth has slowed down. But you're talking rate of 2%, 3% a month is slowing down, but it's still at, you know, an annualized rate at over 20%. And I think what we're going to find is yes. September um, and October, you know, and I think what this is, APRA thing is going to backfire on them. I think what you're going to find is there's FOMO to get in before any changes more significant come to the market, um, especially mm. if your pre-approval runs out, um, you know, early next year, people will be saying, and people are stretching. Um, and also people, are, you know, like in the last boom, they said, well, I might use this um, additional capacity to buy an investment property now because I know next year I might not be able to buy an investment property because they, mm. you know, so you may actually create more demand by potentially perceiving that you can't do it in the future. Um, and so I don't think this is going to work at all. I think the only thing that will work is increasing interest rates dramatically, um, which is really tough to do. You know, the RBA came out last week, the start of October, and said rates are still not going to rise to 2024. We haven't made any changes here. Um, and so, you know, we're still only 2021. So we, we have next to three years at, you know, variable rates at low 2%. Um, you know, there's a lot of legs to go in this, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, it's not to say us, we keep talking the market up. We're never sort of like this, but I can just see it on a ground level. Um, a lot of first-time buyers are still willing. They're changing, they're pivoting. They're not so much... Um, they're going to regions, to be honest. Um, you know, they or they, mm. uh, and so they're going Central Coast, Wollongong, you know, Gold Coast. We've had more clients buy outside of Sydney in the last few months than we ever have. Um, and uh, upgraders are coming back. You know, they're changing their plans. They're saying, "Well, I was going to buy an investment property, but you know what? Let's upgrade our home." Or I've been thinking about doing yeah, this. I can sell my home for a much bigger price now. Um, and mm. um, it was too small for me, but I never thought this was going to be worth this price. This happened to me yesterday with a client. Um, 
And you know what? <laughs> we could have taken on a million dollars of debt three years ago, but I didn't feel comfortable. But now rates are 2%. I feel like I'll take on another million dollars of debt because um, we're going to stay in Sydney. We're not, And I want something a bit bigger because I work from home. And so upgraders, I think, still haven't really entered the market in, in force. Um, and I think they've still got a lot of, a lot of legs to go. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. And anecdotally, I've had the same similar conversations with people. Now, I guess, have you got a property Dumbo? Um, I've got one. If you don't, we can give two. Yeah, I, I would definitely think that, unfortunately, um, it's the validation versus the you wanting advice. Um, you know, it's a common problem that um, we've seen uh, in life, really. Everyone just wants people to say, be the yes person to them. And Unfortunately, that's just not the way we work as a business um, and um, we're always trying to push people so they can get better results for themselves. And, um, you know, I do think that uh, if you are engaging a professional is you want to, you know, you want to hear things that are uncomfortable. And um, I feel like a few times recently, some clients have sent properties after they're purchased and, um, you know, uh, knowing that if they did send it to me prior, they wouldn't have got the, the ticket of approval. Uh, <laughs> and so I do think that that's, that's, that is a challenge because, you um, you know, that I understand that, you know, more than, you know, just as much as them because we see clients on a daily basis of how difficult it is to buy out there. Um, but some compromises and some things you, you shouldn't be making and some people have got those informed positions. And so if you are engaging a professional, don't go to get validation. You know, you want someone to um, really challenge what you're doing <laughs> and, um, you know, try to try to steer you in a better direction. Happened to us last week. Um, you know, a client came to us with a property, all excited, I said, look at the road. That is four lanes of serious traffic. Um, and that is constant, you know, and that is going to be forever. That is not going to change. Uh, oh, but the house got lots of potential and it's a good price for the area and it's it's well back from the road. And I said, look at the road. It's And, yeah, it was. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you're right. I said, people are just going to rule it out because of the road. He's like, yeah, I, I was nearly like that. I said, well, that's your warning sign, right? A week later, they're pretty much oh, trying to buy it yesterday. I'm not sure if they got it, but um, you know, a week later, they've got a much, much better property. You know, only a few streets away, mm. in a quiet back street, a good block. You know, a nice looking frontage, a house with great potential. It's already got good bones, um, and it's a cute little cul-de-sac. Um, it's like literally less than a kilometre away from the other property, and uh, same per- same you know, roughly purchase price, maybe an extra fifty grand more, not much. Um, and look at the difference, right? So desperation, one minute trying to buy a busy road, you know, trying to justify it versus, you know, a week later getting a much better result. So patience pays off is probably the biggest thing I'm trying to encourage clients at the moment is be persistent because it's tough. It is tough, but it's it's a good, it's a really good lesson. Only yesterday, Rachel was talking to her client about, you know, property. She's sort of just getting set up to start you know, getting her brief right, you know, mm. understanding exactly what where her search should be focusing. And so, but she's sort of seen this property and it seems cheap because all of a sudden the actual agent had dropped the guide. And so she sent, called Rachel and said, look, I think maybe I should just go for this because it's within my range and it looks really nice. And and we looked at it and, and I'm like, she, Rachel's like, oh, how, how do we approach this? And I'm like, well, we just have to tell the truth, right? And so the truth is, it's the reason that it seems achievable is because two well a number of things but we immediately we don't even have to inspect this property to know this one is that there's a department block behind it that can't really be blocked out 
Two is that when they've renovated this thing, and we see this a fair amount of times, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a single fronted house. It's not that big, right? Yeah. But when they've renovated, somehow the council has allowed them to squeeze in all these extra bedrooms. So they've made a five-bedroom house. One is a good-sized bedroom. All four others are tiny. Mm. The living space is not in proportion to the amount of bedrooms, yeah. which are bad bedrooms anyway. And then the outdoor space is really tiny compared to the rest of the house. So the actual living area of this house is too small and you've got too many bedrooms, four of which are too small. So you can't even use any of those as a second living area. Like it's just all wrong. No wonder the agent is dropping the price. And mm. as soon as Rachel said this to her, she's, you could hear her go, yeah, I know. I just was sort of hoping, but I yeah. sort of, I know. And it's like perfect client. I love it because she's like, I know I'm trying to fool myself. I'm trying to will myself into this, wish myself into this, but I know it's not right. Yeah. And it's we love those clients, you know, because we know the emotional pull. It's hard in this market. You want to be able to square, you know, push your square peg in your round hole just to get the pain over and done with, let's face it. Yeah. And, and my Dumbo is... Um, so in Home Buyer Academy, we've got a um, we've got a membership part of the site. So when people have done the full ten step course, you know they they send us when they're actually at the pointy end of their search. They they talk to us about what they've what they're looking at and you know how to get it basically. And so I got this email over the weekend from these these our beta students actually. They were doing this through lockdown last in Victoria and they were in last uh, the last lockdown last winter, learning and saving and preparing themselves. So they're out, out looking at property now and they sent me this link saying that, you know, there's a, a deadline for offers, you know, and whether they're going to be conditional or not and you can make conditional offers down in Victoria. And so they said, we just wanted to know whether we should go in without making it unconditional as in not conditional on a successful building a pest inspection mm. <laughs> right now i looked at this link and this picture of this house and it's 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 a weatherboard house in the sort of the dandenong area right oh, yep. so it's on a very steep block um and it's weatherboard it looks like honestly it needs to be demolished like, yep. it looks so shocking and and i'm like and he's so big you know is he, he said to me is it as basically is it is could it be any worse than it looks? And I'm like, it could be a hell of a lot worse than it looks. You know, that that is not a house ever. And he's like, yeah, I know. And so they put in a conditional offer and, of course, somebody's gone and bought that, no conditions. Yeah. Now, if they're going to knock it down and build something else, fine, you know, but the Dumbo is if they're another first home buyer who is just so desperate to get into the market, they're just like throwing caution to the wind, sticking their fingers in the ears, sticking the blinkers on their eyes and just, you know, head down, bum up, run as fast as you can, then potentially they've bought themselves a whole heap of hell. Yeah, I mean, what particular the, properties? Yeah, we're seeing that as well. I mean, the unrenovated stuff, the gap between that and the renovated stuff is is quite tight, um, because that's what happens if you're getting priced out of a suburb. You make compromises on the type of property rather than the location, because you got oh, I can always renovate it. And so, the problem is uh, building costs are through the roof. You know, wages, materials, mm. even getting a trade's really tough. And uh, building is never cheap anyway. Uh, doing the reno um, has taught me that, that, um, you know, it's so much more expensive than you can imagine because it's all the little things. It's, a, you know, especially when you want to set a high standard. And so, uh, and you've got to set a high standard if, you, if you're playing in a lot of these markets because you want to sell it one day um, and you want to get a good price. You want to get your money back. And so it's the only option. And so, um, 
yeah, I think that's the the real challenge at the moment is um, people are doing things that they don't want to be doing. They know that they're the wrong thing to do, but they're just desperate out there and some of these things you can't recover from, you know, they, uh, you know, your profits basically blown because you overpaid on the, on the way in. Um, I know that's easy to say it's potentially you're still going to make a profit, but maybe it's just nowhere near as much if you were just a bit more patient and persistent. So, um, I think the other Dumbo at the moment, um, it is people who, uh, you know, are getting a bit busy in life and, um, aren't prioritizing this property decision. Um, and, you know, they're coming back, you know, six, 12 months later and we're still having the same conversation. And I think talking through your longer-term life plan and getting your ducks lined up. We had a client trying to do an upgrade a few weeks ago and it's the third time. Um, bless them to not get the documents to us. We've asked for them. Um, you know, we need to, it's like a bridging sort of relocation loan and it's quite complex and it's quite big and um, they're busy and they've got businesses and things like that. Uh, and um, all they need to do is get the documents to us. We'll get them pre-approved. We'll get them mm. ready. And then when that right property comes on, they can move. But three times now over the last 12 months, the right properties come on. They've come to us. Can we get pre-approved? Oh. And they've, they've missed out. It's just taken the properties just sell. And they go for way more than budget because they're sort of half playing in the market. You know, you're either in or you're yeah. out. You've got to take it serious, get pre-approved, engage a professional if you want to, and then make it happen. Dedicate time and energy to it. Don't just sort of sit on mm. the fringes because it, it's really costly and those those sort of ships can sail. So, um, yeah. Take- yeah. If, if you're not, it's not for the faint-hearted, this market. If you're not committed to it, um, you are not going to be buying. You know, and, and we've had some... Particularly, it's funny actually, you know, the high net worth space, you know, that the people that with very high net worth that have had this sort of desire to buy an investment property, but they've really lacked the will. Yeah, yeah. It's desire, but not a strong desire. And yeah. this is not an easy market to actually make a commitment, you know, with prices the way they are. But, you know, if I've looked at this one particular client that, you know, he's, he's a bit passive, you know, he can. Um, and so, I, you know, I think probably been talking to him close to a year. And in that time, you know, we've seen 30% growth. I'm like, yeah. well, your pa- passivity and you don't need the money clearly, which is fine, you know, and that's great. But if you have a desire to invest, then you've just lost 30% of growth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You've either got to do it or yeah. you're either in or out. You make hmm. a decision and then uh, commit to it. Um, I think that that's the challenge is yeah. that um, – you know, it's just going to be painful for you if you sit on the sidelines. And um, what you'll end up doing is start to flip into this. Um, you'll be watching people like Martin North and you'll start, you know, confirmation bias um, will head in a, in a different direction um, uh, because you'll feel the pain and you'll start seeking out evidence to make yourself feel better um, and start to say, well, inflation is going to kick off around the world. Interest rates are going to rise and that's going to cause a fall. <laughs> and then I'm going to be the buyer. Um and so mm. I think you've just got to be really careful um, how you uh, mentally play in the market at the moment. So um, hopefully that was helpful to our listeners today. And um, yeah, so the, the, the kind of the, the nuts and bolts of this change is it's not very minor. It's really going to be a problem if they come in heavy handed next year because I doubt they're going to do something again this year uh, or if interest rates rise. And I can't see interest rates rising. Um, and so all it can be is a big sort of heavy-handed hit next year from APRA, but it's like the horses have already bolted. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. So, sorry, we don't bring better news. (laughs) (laughs) Until next week. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, 
eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.